Welcome again to the Southwest Climate Podcast, Mike Crimmins. Zach, how is it going? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I mean, I'm hydrated. Water <laughs> everywhere. Literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively, <laughs> yeah. It is starting to dry out a little bit, but man, we got a lot to talk about today. Well, so I'm overwhelmed. Uh, in prepping for this, I've got like 40 graphs five pages of notes. It's totally incoherent. I was toying around with like feeding it all to chat GPT and asking it to make coherent and, and in the voice of Mike Crimmins, but I didn't, uh, I really, <laughs> I didn't really want to give anybody ideas. Oh um, no. I really hope chat GPT doesn't know who I am. That would be, I'm not even going to try. You know, I can feed it all your publications and you know, if we fed it these podcasts for the last 10 years, I I, I think I think so. I'm gonna I think you just you just put us out of business because it'd be pretty easy for for the artificial intelligence just to to do our podcast each month by mining out our old stuff because I'm not sure we say anything new each each no, month. It, it, quite frankly, it would be better. So I mean, it's just, <laughs> just let's not put it out there. <laughs> no, that's that that that's for another conversation. All that's right. right. So yeah, we're back in business, Mike. All right, here's what I've got. Uh, for you. Tell me, tell me what you think. Um, and this is what we got for the listeners too. So talk a little bit about uh, the last month or so, um, you know, sort of our, our, our normal, what the heck happened, manifestations in, you know, temperature and precipitation and, and some of the larger, you know, atmospheric conditions that sort of drove that. Um, and then, you know, we usually sort of try to put that last month in the context of, you know, the last year or the last six months. And I thought we could do this year because we are nearing the end and, and, you know, we're coming at you at the end of March, you know, April one is sort of the, the peak and in snowpack, it sort of is a, is a nice inflection point for thinking about the, the winter and the uh, behind us and, and moving into the, the dry for summer. We, you know, we still got a little bit left to go, but for the most part, we're, you know, the near horizon is 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 definitely the hot period in, in, in the summer. Uh, so I thought what we could do is think about the big winter stories and, and sort of get at uh, the historical context in that way. Um, and then, Mike, because I love hearing you're sort of the, the climate historian of the group, um, I thought we could do a little bit about the analogs for this year in the past. And then finally, a little bit about what you and I are thinking about and looking for on, on the horizon. How does that sound? I'm game. Yeah, lead us. Lead us through the wilderness. All right. So March, Mike, was yet again another month of pretty active weather. Uh, it was, by most accounts, I'm looking at a figure here that, that looks at uh, the last 30 days across the West, and that is just looking at the area that had received above average precipitation. And it's virtually all of the West, except for Washington, the Northern half of Idaho, and a sliver of Southwestern Montana. But, and boy, I should say that maybe South Eastern Arizona was below 100%, uh, percent, but I don't know how much, I don't know how far below it 
it was. I'm, I just sort of masked, masked out those areas that were not um, above average. And it's pretty impressive just for March. And also the other sort of big picture March climate uh, conditions was, again, it was a, a, another month of cooler than average temperature and those, those things go, go hand in hand. So it was pretty active, Mike. Um, why don't you, uh, if you have it at the four, take us through sort of the, the last 30 days in terms of the storms um, and, and sort of the bigger picture conditions that you know, fueled this uh, pretty wet uh, March period. Yeah, you know, and it, it's been kind of the same, similar story since December. And so as I think we've tracked it each month going forward, you know, February, which was by all accounts a good month, it, I thought that that was it. <laughs> I, thought that, I thought there's no way that we can keep doing this. And it turns out that um, March was even busier for much of the Southwest than February was. So by my accounts, kind of going back over the data, I, I see three major storm events that visited the Southwest. And I think to your point, Zach, we'll have to kind of make some distinctions as we go along here between what Arizona has seen and what New Mexico has seen, because they, they've really been really different winters. And Arizona has seen some just epic accumulations of liquid equivalent precipitation. So if we melt all that snow down at the upper elevations and we just tally up what's been in the rain gauges at low elevations, just, just, amazing accumulations going going forward. And as you get into further east and you get into New Mexico, it's it's been a little bit quieter. And so if we go over the past 30 days, these three storm events really did have epicenters in Arizona. And kind of what I noticed too is as you went towards the later parts of the month, the storm track did lift a little bit further north and we started to see much more of that precipitation fall across northern Arizona. So that first storm event was right around the very beginning of the month, and they all can be really be traced back to the uh, the west coast. And so we've got these troughs of low pressure uh, that are swinging into the region, plenty of moisture available to them, and these long streams of atmospheric river moisture effectively. And so as California gets pummeled with these storms, if this if the low pressure can kind of work its way further in west and drag that moisture in. Arizona gets a gets a shot at it, and then they kind of pull off to the east, which is also why it kind of tails off for eastern New Mexico. So that first storm right around March 1st or 2nd, lots of, brought heavy snow to the upper elevations of uh, Arizona and some pretty decent lower elevation uh, precipitation totals across much of the state. The second main storm event was right around um, the, the 15th of the month. And that one reached into New Mexico a little bit more, uh, again, brought some upper elevation snows and some uh, lower elevation precipitation to much of the region. And then the final event of the month really hammered uh, the northern part of Arizona, a little bit northern New Mexico, but it really left much of southern Arizona and southern New Mexico untouched. Again, just another one of these low pressure systems, plenty of atmospheric moisture to deal with. And, um, you know, there were some precipitation totals with the final event in Arizona, up around Flagstaff, Pace, and Sedona that were two to three inches, like daily total precipitation. So a mix of rain, sleet, and snow, but also um, some lower elevation, very heavy rainfall occurred with that event. So, you know, you're looking at precip totals in some parts of Arizona that were five, six, seven inches for March, just March. And that surprised me when the day, because I, again, I had kind of tuned myself up, like February was awesome. 
March won't be quite that good. And then I stopped kind of paying attention because it didn't rain down here in Tucson. And then I saw that event pop up and I thought, this is amazing. And so you probably have some of the stats on some of these stations um, as far as their precip rankings for the last 30 days. I don't. <laughs> but what I, I actually, th I think I do if you don't. But, if, but if what I can, have, uh... what I have, I'm looking at uh, a cumulative uh, precipitation, you know, since October. And so I'm inferring from that um, and looking at March and, you know, yeah, like what you said with Flagstaff, for example, I mean, right now uh, over the course of the winter, you know, Flagstaff is north of uh, 20 inches accumulated uh, precipitation, you know, which if we didn't get any more rain or snow from this moment going forward, it would be sort of the eighth wettest eighth or ninth wettest is tied right now on on record and and so the percent of the the total winter average right now is 175 percent. so that's that's pretty impressive yeah and 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 you can see in those records uh the, those three storms uh show up there in in in, in flagstaffing quite a bit of 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 rainfall as you mentioned you know if you look down sort of in our uh, corner and uh, Tucson currently we're sort of hovering slightly above average um, right now we're we're at the end of, of March rather on average we're, we would have experienced sort of like four and a half inches at the Tucson International Airport like we're above that like four and three quarters for example so slightly above average for, for Tucson you know, on average, we get maybe another half an inch of rain from now until the start of uh, the monsoon. So, you know, maybe we'll get, you know, another rainfall event, two if we're lucky. But heck, even if we don't get anything from now until the monsoon starts, you know, we're kind of at average for the, the airport. And that's, there's been, Mike, maybe you can speak a little bit more to this, but there's been quite a bit of a of an elevational signal to this precipitation. If I look at the, the maps that I was referring to in the beginning, I, I mean, obviously the high country areas in Arizona and, and New Mexico have, have, have fared the, uh, have fared the most. Um, and, you know, we, we mentioned this before I, I remember talking to you on our last podcast, just looking up at, you know, Mount Lemon, for example, from, from Tucson and just seeing snowpack staying uh, on the landscape for, you know, a week, if not, if not a little bit more than that. And that reflected sort of the cold, we've had a cold winter. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely been below average. Yeah. And, and chilly, and chilly, chilly, if you're living here, you know, you, you waiting for that, like usually that errant 80 degree day sometime in Tucson in the middle of winter to be like, oh yeah, that's what it's like here. We just didn't get any of that. We haven't gotten any of that. We've gotten a little bit now because it's March, but you should be at this time. I was going to say too, I could, I could put a couple numbers on it. On the last 30 days, um, looking at the climate perspectives tool that the Western Regional Climate Center has out, it's a really nice little tool here. And so for the last 30 days, this would be March 2nd through March 30th is the total here. Flagstaff had 7.27 inches of liquid uh, precipitation. So that would be both rain and melted snow. That is the wettest uh, in 98 year record for that this uh, period of time. Uh, there's another uh, Prescott, 74 year record, had two inches of uh, rain, and that's their 10th wettest. 
And you can go over to a couple other states, Sholo, Arizona, had their ninth wettest in a 55-year record. And as you pointed out too, Zach, this we were kind of talking about in this March track here, northern New Mexico did get clipped by a couple of these storms. So Farmington in, in uh, northwest New Mexico had its fourth wettest uh, March period here at 1.17 inches. And then even uh, if you get over to Santa Fe's airport, they have a 40-year record at that, 1.13 inches, and that's their fifth wettest. So that not bad, northern, northern track. Southern Arizona, where just the totals were quite a bit less uh, for Tucson, 0.66 inches, and that's the 42nd wettest. It's right in the middle of the distribution, basically. And then far, uh, as we were kind of talking about earlier, and I want to kind of make sure we we give New Mexico some love because they they haven't had as, as much epicness as we've had here in Arizona, kind of in the monsoon and in the winter season. Uh, far southeast, uh, New Mexico, as you get into the plains over there, Carlsbad had zero rainfall in March, and it's tied for their first driest. It's down in the 10th percentile. So I think they've got a handful of dry marches, but it just kind of shows that there's been this gradient from east to west across the southwest as well. Yeah, I mean it's it's been um it's been impressive. Would you say, Mike, it's been a generational uh, I knew you're gonna do this, man. Like <laughs> you gotta get this trademarked. No, I've actually heard uh seen news actually referring more to California than yeah. uh, Arizona <laughs> that they've 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 used this word. And I, I I wish I could claim it. Uh but obviously yeah. it's a pretty common word. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's now, yes, we're we're gonna see it a lot, I guess, now with all this crazy weather. So, so you mentioned that uh, you've mentioned these sort of three storm systems that, for the most part, uh, affected most of the Southwest, and that they were these uh, low pressure systems that were sort of wafting in from the Northwest, like traditional sort of wintertime storms. Anything, you know, and and, and yes, we've received Flagstaff, for example, has received quite a bit of. Um, you know, records, you said record, right? Record precipitation for the month of. Yeah, for their last 30 days. Um, they they also, if we want to talk about this kind of build on your, your conversation a little bit earlier on the, the full sort of seasonal rankings, uh, the, some of the, the snowfall totals, uh, Flagstaff's airport has had 100, almost 160 inches of total snowfall uh, since the beginning of the season. And that's the fifth. Uh, most amount that they've seen uh, since their record goes back to 1899, actually. So they're in the top five of over a hundred year record. The North Rim of the Grand Canyon saw 220 inches of snow, which I thought was really impressive. Uh, 1925 to 2023 record, and that's their fifth most. And then Williams, um, a little bit shorter record, not really much shorter. No, as long as uh, Flagstaff, 1902 to 2023, second most at 135 inches. So again, on the just on the the snow side, uh, it's been an epic year. Um, and additionally, thinking about all that melted precip too. We'll get to the snow because I think yeah. this is one of the big stories uh, of the winter. Totally agree. What I wanted to bring up was we we it's not uncommon for this region to experience. Uh, we had three storms that brought ra- rainfall, and that's yeah. that seems like probably within the realm of normal. Um, but, but because, because of our totals, it leads one to, to conclude that these have been wetter than normal storms in general. Is that, is that a fair statement? The, uh, 
Yeah, I would think that a couple of the storms, the, the one right around the 21st of the month and the one at the beginning of the month had locally heavy precipitation. So on the order of one to two inch totals in some locations, and those most likely would be records for the day. So, you know, I think getting in March, precipitation totals of that magnitude is is pretty dang good. But the storms that generated it, like the storm systems, the, just the number of them were, was probably not outside of what we would expect to see. Or is is three sort of maybe one more than we we would expect to see? Yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head. The um, And again, it's going to vary from north to south, right? Because the, the progression through the spring is the storm track starts to lift north, right? And it's replaced by the subtropical high building to the south. You know, so our what eventually turns into our monsoon ridge is, is already south of here, building over Mexico. And there's this give and take, right, as we move into spring. And so as that lifts north, you start to see the storm track lift north. It's harder for that precip to get further south. And it's also why you can have these storm systems that like hammer the northern part of the state and we just get wind and it's dry down here. And that, that's actually what happened with the last storm of the month. So we're kind of at this dividing line as we push further. And that's why in April, it's even tougher, the event. So March historically is, it, it's a month that Arizona and New Mexico can get precipitation. It typically is more frequent in the Northern part of the state than the Southern part of the state. This is probably on track. The trend though, over time is that March gets drier. That's the kind of the climate change expectation here because we get this contraction of the winter because you have you know less of that jet stream activity um, pushing further south uh, deeper into the into the spring. And we also talked about last time the sort of large scale atmospheric pattern being one where this ridge was sort of was sort of located more west and westward than it than it normally is. Did that sort of did those conditions sort of persist? Yeah, you know, and so if you read some of the the discussions, uh, there's been a couple of nice blog posts by by Noah on kind of trying to diagnose what's been going on this particular winter. And there's there's still the the broad thinking that La Nina was present and that we we had a general La Nina pattern, which would which would lead to a ridge of high pressure in the East Pacific, and then you get downstream troughing. And on average, what that leads to is is typically cool in dry conditions across the Southwest, which is why the forecast really, well, tip, typically it leads to, to drier than average conditions, not off, sometimes cool, sometimes not with these uh, drier than average winters with La Nina. Um, but this winter, a much sharper, more persistent ridge across the East Pacific, which led to a sharper, more persistent trough across the West. And then there's that compensating ridge across the East. So if you look at the the precip patterns across the winter, if you look at the temperature patterns across the whole season, you see wetter, cooler than average conditions across the West. And then the East has been quite, it's been dry in many locations and quite a bit warmer. You know, that the big news story kind of nationally is how spring has come earlier than average in the uh, Eastern US. And we just don't have that same pattern here. We have the, basically the opposite. You know, it is interesting. And some of the things that you hear about online is just like when you when you think about La Nina or El Nino and you think about the the patterns, the precipitation patterns from from them, 
that's one thing. And and this year, like, has not actually looked like that. And so, a natural question is, you know, that that people have been raising is like, what what what's up? Why is this? Why is this not working? We've talked about this, you know, uh, a number of times. But the question that I I sort of you know was was thinking about and you know is there sort of this what we know now is that the patterns of el nino in particular in the tropical pacific ocean matter quite uh it's pretty it's pretty influential just the sea surface temperature patterns and where there's convection and changes in in where they are geographically can can have changes in and the impacts of that in far off places like the Southwest, like what matters is that, that those sea surface and convection patterns uh, more than let's say just a blanket characterization of, well, on average, the sea surface temperatures, you know, are are above a a, a critical threshold. And, And so we really have to sort of think about more of the, the, the geographic nuance, you know, that happens in, in El Nino quite, quite a bit, but is this, I guess the question that I'm, I'm sort of mulling over is, does that sort of play out in the same way that La Nina, for La Nina conditions, such that maybe differences in in what's going on in the tropical Pacific Ocean and La Nina could actually be part of the explanations for, you know, why sort of the, the ridge has been a little bit further West than it otherwise would be. And consequently, you know, we, you know, the, the rainfall patterns have, have, have changed and we've been wetter here in the Southwest than we otherwise would be. So, uh, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on that. Yeah. You know, we were, we were talking about this kind of earlier and I think you, I think you set me up, which I appreciate. Uh, there, there was a, well, okay. So stepping back where we just kind of described that, that pattern across the Pacific, just like you said, real subtle, longitudinal shifts of these persistent patterns can lead to really large uh, sensible outcomes, you know, sensible in the sense of like, we see lots of rain or a little bit of rain, right? And if they're persistent, they can stack up over time, right? So I go ahead. Did you want to add something to that? I wanted to interject there because that's where I was, I was going is what, to me, it seems like people talk about that more for an El Nino and Mm. not for a La Nina, but I'm not sure. No, that's a good point. Yeah. I, I, you know, and I, we don't like, if you look at the statistics, we talked about this for since 2011, we started this podcast. The rule of thumb in the cross the Southwest is that if you see, so we we should turn this into some kind of nice saying, you know, if like you see a La Nina coming, uh, it's going to, this is, it's going to be dry. That's, that doesn't, that's not a, kids aren't going to chant that on the playground or anything like that, but but that's the way we talk about it is La Nina, La Nina outlooks were reliably dry because of typically what would happen to the jet stream is that you would create this uh, East Pacific Ridge that would extend into the Western US. Storm track would shift north. You get persistent um, precipitation over the Pacific Northwest. We would lose our already um, few and precious winter storms. We don't get a lot anyways in the Southwest during the winter. And so we would, we would go dry. So that that's typically, and if you look historically, a strong La Nina's there, there just aren't any, if many, um, anything that comes near average or above average, right? The other side of the coin, I think what you're saying, Zach, is that El Nino's, they, you get all these flavors and we, we weathered um, 
pardon the pun, a really a bummer, the El Nino, the one that we hyped, I hyped uh, a lot in 2015, 2016, as the, the Godzilla El Nino fizzled and didn't get it. And so if you look at all the El Nino events, winter time in the Southwest, there's actually a, a handful of very dry ones. And then there's a lot of wet ones. So, that, so like we would kind of the rule of thumb was like La Nina is reliably dry in the winter. El Nino's, I don't know, could be, could be wet, but I wouldn't get your hopes up. This is where the little, the adage kind of fell apart. And it's, I think one of the distinguishing factors of this was that it was not a strong La Nina this winter. It was a waning La Nina. Uh, it was the third of uh, a string, like the triple dip, which I don't think we have uttered yet uh, in our podcast time here. And so it was kind of on its way, on its way out. And, and what you do see in the record is, is you get closer to kind of neutral, kind of weak La Ninas. They can go dry, but there's a handful of ones that are like kind of wettish. And I, my my kind of thinking is is that once that that forcing starts to lose its grip, other kind of weather scale variability can can take over. And I don't know if that's exactly what happened this winter. There's again that nice Noah blog post did some simulations to try to look at the forcing of La Nina, and they really found that the La Nina this year couldn't explain the precip pattern across the West. So it, it really had to have been kind of weather scale, natural variability in the system. But it was interesting though, if like you look at the, the regional patterns, the, the sort of atmospheric pressure patterns, like it did look like a La Nina. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it was, it was the, it was the kind of the waning, the waning, you know, the, as the sea surface temperature pattern relaxes, the atmosphere is still spun up and is, is, is still reflecting that La Nina. So even as the sea surface, you know, the sea surface temperature patterns were not really La Nina even early in the winter. And then there it's officially now because we had multiple months of it now. And it's interesting to look at, I was looking at the map right now. It looks, it's got some solid looking El Nino <laughs> base to it right now. But, um, but yeah, it, it, it had that, that La Nina bridge and it, you know, it phased just right where it kind of got stuck in some persistent periods where it put that trough across the West. And, and then we had real nice long fetches of atmospheric moisture based on that kind of upper level pattern that delivered, I think, what was the total? It's something like 31 atmospheric rivers is what the Scripps Center had uh, tallied up for this winter. It was something pretty remarkable. Yeah, I have that. Um, yes, 31. 11 weak, 13 moderate, six strong, and one extreme. One extreme. It's <laughs> a yeah, pretty I'm good distribution. Sure they, yeah, I'm not sure how they quantify this. And, and I, I think they're classifying it um, now, but I, I, I don't know what, what constitutes a weak or a moderate or a, a strong, but 31. And they're counting these maybe in, in you know, my reading of the literature, it's, it's, they haven't been discrete events. They've been more about like um, the fraction of hours or fraction of days that ha have a certain, you know, water vapor content. Um, yeah. But they're counting them now. And I, this is so, so maybe we should say a little bit about this group because there is a group out of Scripps Institute of Oceanography, the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes, who 
you know, has really been pioneers in the research of this and they've got great online resources and they do forecasting and it's, it's, it's a great resource. So this is coming from them. So, um, but yeah, by, by all accounts, um, it's been, uh, pretty striking. I want to come back to this though, because I think this is another big, um, weather story of the, uh, of the winter. Um, but maybe just to put a bow on this, you know, the last 30 days, you know, and maybe even, um, you know, this winter, I think what I just got from you is sort of your explanation of, um, right. So El Nino or La Nina is always just a fraction of our explanation. Sometimes it's, you know, you know, I don't want to put numbers on it, but it's, uh, it's, it's more than others, but it's never like the full story. But what, what you would say, even though we had a week, La Nina, week to slightly weak to almost moderate, I don't think it ever crossed into moderate. Is that correct? You know? I don't think it did either. Yeah, it was it was borderline um, weak to moderate uh, event. Even though we had that, like it was a waning event, third year in a row, and um, probably the forcing was such that a lot of weather could could happen, and and that's basically what we saw, and that's maybe probably the the better explanation for you know the the non precipitation. La Nina pattern that we we observed. Yeah, you know, and I think it, it's the weird thing about the weather in the winter, and, well, and all all year round. But is like that subtle forcing can um, it can harmonize with other sort of you know weather scale, meaning like short term weather variability, and also sort of seasonal aspects like Julian oscillation or you know some of the other oscillations that we would think about like Arctic oscillation. And so, you know, depending on those, which have both dependent and independent components, you know, they can sync up with this weakish La Nina signal and, and create, um, you know, a somewhat persistent weather pattern. So it'll be interesting to do some more digging on the, the postmortem for the full season. Because like, as we've been talking and I've, you know, I've been reading the discussions, um, the NOAA National Center for Environmental Information. NCEI has it does a synoptic scale discussion each month. And so the March one I'm really interested in, which won't be out for a couple of weeks, just to kind of compare it to the February and January and December. There, there's been some consistent threads of like, you know, they, they talk about La Nina being, you know, an important component, but kind of minor. And then you'll see the other emergent patterns like Pacific North America pattern, which is can be it's a natural mode of variability and can be forced by La Nina kind of coming online and retreating. And then there's these other modes that they'll look at or oscillations in the atmosphere too. So I think La Nina is definitely part of the story uh, this winter. And it's just yet another little like, you know, humbling aspect. Like, yeah, those La Nina winters don't always behave as you expect them to. And so it's also why our correlations are not, you know, 0.9 to 0.1 with with Enso and anything that we've put forward on uh, on this podcast. Well, I mean, another question that has come up um, that I've raised in my own head, but I've also heard others say is just whether or not Enso in general is becoming more unreliable. And I'm I'm not sure you have a take on this. Or you're sort of shrugging. I think, yeah. What, yeah, what, what, I, I mean, I'm like squinting. I'm like, I, I don't think it's, there's not really any evidence right now that there's been a sort of a systematic shift in El Nino, both, I mean, okay, well, one thing is, is that the oceans are warming for sure. 
Well, I think and, this is undercurrent to this question. The undercurrent. Okay, to, go ahead. Yeah, the undercurrent to this question is: is is it becoming more unreliable? Is is because you're in this climate that's moving, that's that that that's warming, and consequently, you know, we have limited records to begin with. Yeah. And we, and, 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 and consequently when the base state is changing, like it, and we know that these systems are highly dynamic and particularly, we talked about this a little bit, particularly for uh, El Nino, when you have subtle variations in, in the position of convection and in the warming, like, does all of this mean that maybe like those statistics that, you know, allowed us to sort of tip the scales one way or the other, you know, are no longer holding because it's just a system on the move. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. I think, the, I think the undercurrent is like it's a climate change kind of kind of question. It is, and I I don't. Uh, this is the this is the hard thing is that we we don't know we don't know we have not nailed down El Nino, right? I mean, there there's still a lot of like challenges both in well short period of record um monitoring modeling i mean dynamics you know, dynamics um the 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 synergy between chaotic weather scale forcing on on el nino and then the how those emerge and then how those things sync up with other things that are on the move like you know um changes in the arctic actually do connect with tropical teleconnections like we do, we know that but but how they do that <laughs> it's not super clear and how to use them in a predictive mode, I think is also, is also really challenging. So, so you got, ah, dude, it's, it is, it's really hard. Right. And so like just stepping back from this winter, I don't, it's, it, it honestly wasn't super surprising to me because I felt like for the last two winters, we were, they were kind of edge cases with the sort of weak to moderate. And we've had in the recent past wet conditions, on the northern california coast for sure that because it's a pivot point but they've sometime reached in the southwest so getting wet conditions during those situations hasn't always you know hasn't been super surprising um but the there's still fingerprints of la nina in the atmosphere and so it's not like climate change is now reorganizing the teleconnection pattern with el nino and la nina it's probably subtle um and the modeling too is like looking forward as how ENSO might change. It's, it's interesting to follow that because it's still, there's a, a ton of uncertainty um, in all of the studies that come out, you know, is it going to get less frequent with more muted El Nino La Niñas or is it going to become more frequent with more extremes has still not really been nailed down. Well, and one point that I think is worth making is it's not that you know, a changing energy balance, a climate change signal is undermining like the phenomenon of ENSO, right? It's just, it it potentially could change the expressions of precipitation, for example, on, on the landscape in far off, in far off regions. So it's, it just makes it harder to potentially makes it harder to see what that, that signal is. And I, you know, for example, like even subtle changes in the jet stream, which there is speculation that, you know, a, you know, an altered climate state is going to express itself in changes in, in the jet stream. I think this is like an, you know, ongoing, you know, hot research topic and things that we've, we, the, the science community is, is very, very interested in. And so you get those 
any any changes in the jet stream is going to potentially cause there to be um, different precipitation patterns. You might even get like uh, more extreme precipitation in certain areas just because the yeah, just the geographic position of that 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 jet stream brings more rain. It doesn't bring more rain in the sense that um, there's more water vapor in the atmosphere, although there may be. It's just like things are happening at maybe a different time or, you know, further north or squinting your eyes. You following what I'm saying? No, I totally. Yep. Okay. So I, I think, I guess the point is, is it's, it's um, maybe the unreliable question is it's a good one, but, you know, in a moving climate, it's not that the climate is, is, is upending the physical process of El Nino or La Nina, that's still occurring. It's just how we're, what the expressions of that. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's at least what we're observing. And I, I think in the modeling studies too, like in climate projections out to end of century, you know, we look at uh, El Nino, La Nina patterns in the forcing and still largely, you know, cause the, the thermodynamics are thermodynamics and so how they express themselves. So it's really a question of what's the strength and magnitude and frequency of the El Nino events into the future. And that then relates to where those um, teleconnections will emerge. Right. I think that's it. Okay. That's let's uh, let's move on. Um, all right. Big stories, big winter stories. I've got four of them and they're all kind of the same story. <laughs> right. But I'm curious if you have any others. So, and we can talk about these in turn. Um, Generational snowpack. Uh huh. <laughs> You're gonna use it, aren't you? Quite a bit of extremes that uh-huh. we've seen this winter. We talked about this. It's just been a winter of atmospheric rivers. I think that's become common now in the in the common parlance for the public. Atmospheric rivers. It's quite descriptive. It's 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 catchy. Um, you know, I, I throw another one. You know, we don't tend to focus on California, but, you know, the California drought um, came into the year, came into the winter in a, in a, not a great state and it's leaving in a great state. The flip in California drought. So those are my four big winter stories. They're all sort of related to precipitation. Is there another one? No, (laughs) no. I mean, it's like it, as I was, we were talking about before, it's like, I don't feel like this is one of those complicated stories for us to sort through. It's like, there's just so much evidence pointing in all in one direction. Um, it's, it makes it kind of an easy, like this was pretty epic, you know, from beginning to start. But, you know, you said something earlier that I, I didn't think about and didn't do a ton of research on, but just that Arizona and New Mexico, you know, were quite different. I mean, quite different, maybe in the sense of they were both generally pretty good in terms of rainfall, but Arizona was much received much more rain and, and snow than than New Mexico. So that might be a, a fifth one. Uh, I don't know. Do you, if you have anything more that you want to say there? Uh, yeah, just give, I, I mean, I just I, people some love. Right. Again, it's just that I, you know, we're the Southwest Climate Podcast. So try to do do good by the whole Southwest. And it, it is just to point out that um, as you got further east across the Southwest into New Mexico, it it wasn't just didn't see the stack up of the precipitation events like um, Arizona did, and especially Northern Arizona. I mean, Northern Arizona is the big winner 
for of the whole Southwest here, the proper Arizona, New Mexico Southwest. So I, yeah, just some recognition that the drought picture across the Southwest has been on the move all winter. And, you know, we, we had a great, we had a, a really good monsoon and, and that was definitely more Arizona than New Mexico. I think New Mexico did okay, but we had a lot, quite a bit more precipitation here, if I remember correctly. Um, so there was some lingering drought that we've started to really eradicate here. So most of Arizona is drought-free on the U.S. drought monitor um, as of just the last week. And there's still, you know, drought hanging on from kind of the middle of uh, New Mexico and then further east. And so it it really is the Great Plains part of New Mexico is still hanging on with some short and long-term drought that is, you know, up into the moderate to severe to extreme categories. But then, you know, from central New Mexico going uh, west, it, there's some abnormally dry conditions still hanging on in parts of New Mexico. And then we've largely let go of all of that. So just, just a little bit of recognition that um, the real far eastern parts of New Mexico are still suffering with that drought. All right, snowpack. Because I couldn't find... Uh, I couldn't find any information that sort of looked at Western snowpack in aggregate and sort of stacked it up historically. But my, you know, my scrolling through the, the data, you know, I, this has to be a top five historical snowpack season, like writ large. And as you go further south, let's say, um, you know, California, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. If you just look at that part of the West, like, I mean, if top three, if not one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What's your take on that? I mean, I, I, this is very subjective, but the point here is like, it is, um, it's, it's been about as good of a snowpack season as I think you can get. Yeah. And I think from just the extent Right. I mean, it's it, re, you know, the oh, man, you've probably seen the the pictures out of uh, out of California. Right. Where people are like they're tunneling down into their house, like they're tunneling down into the second story of their house. And there's the the pictures uh, up at Mammoth where the ski lifts can't run because the the snow is up above the chairlifts. Yeah, it's above the chairlifts. If you just you just get dragged through the snow. I mean. I mean, there were storms that dropped 10 feet of snow. Yeah, like at a time. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the reporting I saw was um, there's there's, you know, different ways of measuring it, different places to measure it. Some places it's the it's the snowiest that they've ever seen. Some are top three in California. You know, we were just going over the stats here in Arizona. You know, Williams, uh, Flag and uh, North Rim of the Grand Canyon are top five. Um, Utah has seen fantastic snow. You, you get into Colorado and it's kind of the, the New Mexico thing too, is the further east we went, the western, uh, the west of the continental divide did did really pretty good. And then as you got, you go into east, it dried out, right? So we that's kind of the whole uh, trough ridge pattern across the whole kind of western U.S. So um, yeah, it's, I, it's just it, fantastic. It's true. But even if you look in some of the, and I'll, I'll go over some of the da- data here in a minute, but even if you look at some of the drainages that are draining to the east, like the South Platte and the Colorado, yeah, yeah. they're still at 107% of average. Yeah. And it's it's like, so this is, we were kind of arguing about before, like, I don't feel like 
hitting 107% of average is in the same ballpark as 500% of average. Like I, I, I don't count them as like, you, you got to see, and everybody else is like a plus with like a bunch of weird extra credit points too. All right. Yeah. Let me run over some things. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's just when we think about what our normal conversations about snowpack, like yeah. in normal year, you're like, yeah, hundred percent. This is awesome. Yeah, we're taking it. We're like, oh, there's 80%. It's almost, you know, you're almost passing. We're almost you know? there. Yeah, um, great. So, okay. So um, I just picked out a few of these basins. Um, so these will be numbers that look at sort of average across the, the higher elevation snow monitoring uh, sites uh, from the National Resources Conservation Service. But I'm looking at the lower Colorado sort of Lake Mead basin as of yesterday, March 28th, um, 348% of its long-term median. And it is, yes, as of yesterday, it's maximum amount in its history. Jeez, okay? wow. So the white Yampa further north, as of yesterday, was at its maximum value, which was 145% of the uh, long-term median. Gunnison um, was near its maximum point, uh, 165%. The Rio Grande Headwaters, which is in the San Juan uh, Mountains of Colorado for the most part, you know, 137% of average. And that was, you know, not quite close to the to the maximum, only the 72nd percentile, but still uh, 137% of average. Uh, Colorado River Headwaters, uh, 134% of average in the 89th percentile. The Rio Grande, so... I'm doing this a little bit out of order. Uh, let, me, let me let me step back. So the the Rio Grande headwaters, which is in Colorado, uh, 137 percent of average. Further south, if you look at the the Rio Grande, sort of central Rio Grande um, that drains into Elephant Butte. So this is slightly north of Las Cruces, 262 percent of average. It's it's above the the, the 90th percentile. So that's in the sort of in the in the basins that are important to Arizona and New Mexico. But then if you go over to California, I mean California this year has have been, you know, the 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 hot spot for the most yeah, part. Yeah, ground zero for a lot of the stuff for sure. Ground zero. So just some just some striking numbers. The average of the southern Sierras is currently at 297% of average. It has never been this high. Uh, I mean, it, it blows away the 19, the, 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 the previous high, which was 1982, 1983, it blows that away. You know, that year I, I'm, I'm extrapolating here was, you know, about 225% of average. So, I mean, this is way outside of the, the, the records. Central Sierra is 234% of average, again, higher than the previous high in uh, 1982, 1983. Uh, and then the Northern Sierra is 191% of average, not quite as high as it was in uh, 82, 83. So just huge snowpacks uh, across the Southwest uh, and Western. In Zach, did you, did you see some, so I was, I was looking at these plots too, while you're talking about it, but I was clicking on some of the California ones. This is in the, the San Joaquin watershed. The, the snow water equivalent is 72 inches. Like that. <laughs> Like, like, you know, we look at Arizona ones and they're, they're big, but like 72 inches of water in snowpack. Yeah. 
like, oh my gosh, where's all this water going to go? Multiply that by 10, you know? Oh my gosh. It's just crazy. 720 inches. No, it's, it's been, yeah. So snowpack historic, don't quote me, uh, but I would love to see some indexes that put this year in, in context of all the other years and just try to understand it, you know, answer the question, you know, is this, you know, the highest snowpack writ large? Uh, that we've seen. And I, I think it's got to be top five. Um, I think you're probably right. And it's even, you know, just looking up and down. And again, I know I'm, I, I, I'm not trying to be, t- yeah, some of the Eastern uh, New Mexico watersheds are actually, they're looking actually quite good based on the upper Northern snowpack in the, the Northern part of the state. The um, upper Pecos, 172% of average. Yeah. Like even the Northern Rockies, there's, um, there's watersheds up in Northern Montana that are average, if not pretty good above average. And it's really only the far Pacific Northwest that is, they're, they're close to average. They're like 80 to 90%. So it's, it is remarkable how far reaching the precip has been. And as you're saying, cooler than average conditions leading to snowpack building up across the entire West. Yeah. I mean, you know, the low, like the basin, the lowest basin average you know, and there's probably 50 that I'm looking at right here from the NRCS, the lowest percent of average is 74%. And ironically, that's in probably one of the wettest places in the U.S., which is on the coastal range of of, of Washington. Like, right, you know, I've seen that too. And they still have, they have, range have it, yeah, you know? they have 40 inches of snow water equivalent and they're at um, 73% of average. Right. And that's the 21st percentile. So yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean a, a a a lot of rain up there where it 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 you know a, a deviation of whatever it is might not mean as much as it, you know, uh you know 10% below average would here. You know, 10%, 30% below average up there is l- probably a lot less consequential than, you know, 5% below average is down here just because of the difference in the amount of rain. Anyway, um I think the point is yeah, like uh this is a this is this is a good picture for for the water supply, uh, predominantly, uh, of course, what comes with this was a lot of epic snowfalls and potential flooding. And there's a downside of this as, as well. But if you're, if you're a water person, um, I think this has uh, been about as, uh, helpful as a season as you could have asked for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So second, uh, story, uh, or maybe it's third, since we already did the distinction between Arizona and New Mexico. Atmospheric rivers. We talked a little bit about this 31 uh, that we've seen that they're counting now by many accounts that is much more than one would expect. This has been fueled, Mike, in part by, you know, the the ridge positioned off the the West Coast that has allowed sort of the uh, low pressures to dip down along the coast of California and, and, and move in. And, and as they're spinning sort of entrain the, uh, you know, moist air from the, from the tropics, um, anything that strikes you aside from the sheer number and the amount of rainfall from these atmospheric rivers that you, that we haven't already covered, but I think obviously this is a, this is a major story. Yeah, I it's just the the frequency. Like th- that that seems impressive. I know we don't have super long records, but um that that's, that's a lot of that's a lot of 
focused atmospheric moisture pointed at the Western US? You know, I think it's just worth saying just a few things about the climatology of atmospheric rivers. I mean, what what ends up happening is they happen every year. Um, they're large, they they bring large fractions of precipitation largely to the West Coast. They're 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 a in this area, they're a, a, a wintertime phenomenon. So if you look sort of drawing on a, a paper from Jonathan Rutz and Steenberg and, and Marty Ralph from 2013, they sort of just looked at the AR frequency by month along the West Coast. And as you're up sort of right around the, the border between Oregon and, and, and Washington, the frequencies are are shifted more toward the November, December, January period. So the, the peak in AR frequency, atmospheric river frequency is in November. As you come down to sort of central California, um, San Francisco area, that peak shifts a month. So December, December and January are sort of where they get um, more of their frequencies when more of their events occur. And then further down the Southern California, Again, that shifts one month later. So January, February is sort of the the peak in AR frequency. And the magnitude of the numbers is, is much higher further north than it is uh, further south. So, so more ARs uh, happen in Pacific Northwest than they do in Central California than they do in Southern, Southern California. Um, yeah. So that's, that's one thing. And then another Im- important note is just in terms of the fraction of the total annual rainfall. So for Northern California, central to Northern California, it's like on average about 50% of their precipitation, annual precipitation comes in in atmospheric rivers. Same with like Southern California and actually, um, yeah, same in Southern California for the most part. And obviously as you go further North into Oregon and Washington, because they just get a lot more rain, um, that fraction goes down to about 20, between 20 and 30%, but still a significant amount. So yeah, we've had a a much more active atmospheric river season, but we've we've also had them in the past. um, We have them every year. Related to to ENSO? Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think there's a couple papers out there. I think a slight, a slight lean towards higher frequency in La, weak La Ninas to neutral years. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, anything else on atmospheric rivers? Big story. Yeah, huge story. Big story. Big part of the the pattern across the West. We talked a little bit about this. You mentioned uh, in extremes. Um, uh, you're you're rattling off some data from from extremes from uh, a website that I've that's eluding me right now. Do you have do you know what that? The Noah. Which one? Which one are we know. talking about? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it does. I was just going to give try to give credit uh, to the website because it's a it's a nice resource, but it allows you to look at stations and um, you can extract like the you know for rainfall for example or for precipitation for example the percentile. Um, that the rainfall has fallen in over different periods. So I was looking at the last 30 days, um, you know, for a number of sites, there's just a lot of sites that are, that are above the 
the 90th percentile for the last 30 days. And and the same goes for the last, you know, since October 1st. So yeah. the yep. point here is again, it's it's the same, it's the same story. You know, the 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 frequency of the atmospheric rivers generated a lot of snowpack. And the and really the the the, the rainfall and snow that has been from these atmospheric rivers has been extreme values. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Pegging, yeah, pegging some of these values to their highest or lowest percentiles for sure. Um, and if you looked at the so the downside of doing these podcasts at the end of the month, Mike, is that we don't get the the benefit of having the full month data in and having the you know, Noah, for example, uh, do that run the statistics. And so we don't have that information. So for the statewide precipitation ranks, I'm, I'm drawing on now just the three month period from December to, to February. So not the last month, but just over that three month period, California was uh, on average or averaged over the entire state was the basically the 10th wettest, 11th wettest on record. Um, Nevada was the seventh wettest, Utah was the eighth wettest, Colorado was the ninth wettest, Arizona was, you know, and th this is out of 128 28 seasons. Arizona came in at the 99th wettest of 128. Um, so I said that backwards, but it was sort of like the 29th wettest. Anyway, the ranks are, and that'll only increase as we add uh, March to these, to these tallies. So we'll have yeah. To, yeah. to come back in a month and, and, and update this, but broadly speaking, it's, uh, you know, the, the wet signal here is, has been pretty impressive. All right. Anything else on the extremes, Mike? Nope. Got nothing. Call it good. All right. Drought. I'm, I'm, I'm talking your, your language here. <laughs> um drought so Cal the flip in california drought so dr california really actually you probably can extend this to be more about the the drought in the west i mean you look at u.s drought monitor uh, at the beginning at beginning of october at beginning of this winter you know there's large areas covered in moderate extreme moderate severe and extreme drought so for example 31% of the area was moderate, severe, or extreme at the beginning. This is across the West. Fast forward to today, and that's dropped to 6%. So a huge improvement with California experiencing pretty much the, the most improvement. They had large areas that were under the extreme conditions, so their most severe drought category, largely in Central California. A lot of extreme drought as well, so their second highest category. Almost the entire state was a moderate, severe, extreme. And now fast forward to the end of this, to right now, uh, and actually just a small little sliver is, is, is of moderate, severe, extreme. So drought has almost completely disappeared. Now I know if I'm gonna channel you, Mike, you'd be like, yeah, but this is just one characterization of drought, right? It's, it's or would you not say that? Would you do you think that the kind of rain and snow that we've experienced and the temperatures have sort of changed fundamentally the the drought picture? Yeah, I mean it's it's winter 
it's winter precip and it's been substantial snowpack, which is a flavor of water that can be managed, you know, through reservoirs, filling reservoirs and those kinds of things and, and recharges soil. So it, it can be, you know, really effective at beating back both short and long-term drought. You know, this summertime, it's a little bit different. You get heavy rain in certain locations. It's typically not reservoir filling. It, it can be really beneficial ending fire seasons and, and putting down some soil moisture. But yeah, winter precip across the West is, is, a, is a really good flavor of water. And I think it's helped make some, uh, some really good strides at beating back uh, both short and some long-term drought conditions as well. All right, so those are the five stories. They're good stories. They're all positive too, which is crazy. Yeah, you know, we don't normally get to do that. We don't, but you know, we 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 do gloss over the hazards associated with it. I mean, we we take a very atmospheric kind of perspective on this, right? And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not entirely true. I mean, we are thinking about this. We're extrapolating to think about the water water situation. Obviously, drought as well. So we we are thinking about the 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 impacts associated with it, but but there has been quite a bit of destruction caused by these um, events um, and that that should not go unnoted. No, it's for sure. Like we're, we're, we're even currently having um, swift water rescues in Arizona as, you know, this is also from dam release water. So flooding, um, you know, streams that aren't normally there and then snowmelt. So we're having swift water rescues and we've had some, some recent deaths as well. So, I mean, it, in these situations, we swing to one extreme there, there it's definitely can be tricking, be, tricky being out here in the West with too much water. And that's something I think we're going to, we're not out of the woods yet, you know, cause all of this snowpack we've been talking about, it's going to make its way downhill over the next couple of months. And there's going to be some, some flooding we haven't seen in quite a while. Yeah. So what do you think, what do you think the narrative, the narrative is coming out of this this winter because it's often maybe it's just me but there has been a convenient convenience not the right an accurate narrative of of of, of drought and heat uh and and the impacts associated with it you think that this is going to turn to a more positive narrative in terms of climate impact or, yeah i i i mean well i think you know for arizona new mexico and especially arizona the 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 major uh, water utility Salt River project in Arizona has actually been spilling water for several weeks now. And so they, they do that in anticipation of a huge springs uh, pulse. So they don't have to do flood control, right? So they don't end up in a situation where there's too much water behind the dam and they've got to spill it over the top or some terrible thing like that. So, so like we're in a current situation where the reservoirs are going to, they're going to fill up in Arizona just fine. The smaller this, and again, right, there's smaller reservoirs in Arizona. Um, they're the ones kind of in-state and they're in-state watersheds. Still moisture is going to improve. We're having an amazing wildflower season. Um, we're going to see water flow well late into the spring, which we don't normally see. I think it's going to be really helpful with um, reducing higher elevation fire danger. We may end up having some issues with because we've grown so much stuff at the lower elevations with lower elevation fires later into May. Um, and into early June. I think, Zach, this, uh, the point that you brought up as we were talking earlier is that um, it, it has not, this winter has not solved the problem on Lake Mead and Lake Powell. And so maybe you could say a, a couple more words on that. Cause I think that that's, that's one of the take homes here is like our long-term, you know, water climate uh, issues across the West are still here. 
you know, even with one good winter like this. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, another positive spin from all of the rain and snow is reflected in the streamflow forecast. So just for, you know, the Colorado River, what flows into Lake Powell, the forecast when all said and done is for right now. And, 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 and these forecasts are fairly accurate right now because most of the snow has already fallen. And, and so the forecast is about 127% uh, of average. And we, we, should, we should bring this point up and we've made it in the past. And that is those the stream flow percentages are always lower than the percentages in the basins uh, in part, just because there's, you know, it's not a one-to-one relationship between snowpack percent of average and stream flow percent of average. Nonetheless, 127% of average is a really good sign. But I think the, the, the bigger point here is that, you know, for the, for this particular river where the issues are in part about what the atmosphere delivers and in part about what we use on the river, right? So there's, we know that the Colorado is over allocated. They talk about this in terms of structural deficits. So more water uh, volume is given out than would naturally flow in the, in the rivers. And consequently over time, you're just, no matter how big your basins are, your reservoirs are, you're, you're, you're going to have uh, declining storage capacity. And that, that's what we've, that's what we've seen. So uh, over time, we've just been in that deficit that is both a structural deficit and quite frankly, quite a bit of winters, more winters when we've seen less uh, below average than above average stream flows, you know, so, so it's, it's in part both of those, those stories. And yeah, just over time, we're, we're in a state where um, we need, we need what? five of these winners back to back four. I don't know what it is, but it's not one. It's not one. And I don't even know if it's, it's five, right? Cause it, the, the dance is going to be trying to, to try to deliver water to the people who need it while you're filling it up at the same time. Right. Ten. Yeah. To I, back to know? back to back. Yeah. Which is why this is such a big long-term problem. It's a it, 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 it's a long term for sure. It's a, it's a long term issue. But the other thing is is like, you know, we're not going to get that generational snowpack um, consecutively. Um, it just it's it's I suppose it's it's theoretically possible, but it's just highly highly uh, unlikely. Yeah. The interesting thing is is that you know so this is all shaking out. We've got an El Nino. It's forming, right? I mean it. It's it's probably on deck for next fall and uh, winter. And again, we as we talked about that, it, that's not a reliable predictor for the the Upper Colorado River Basin. Um, okay, I'm, I want to come to that though for our next segment. But let me just finish with the, with one more note here because um, I was looking at the numbers of stream flow of of water elevation projections in both Lake Mead and and Powell. And I think one of the implications, if I'm reading this correctly, and I should also say that I'm not an expert in water and that, that the management of the Colorado river is very complex and involves 
managing jointly Lakes Mead and, and, and Lake Powell in a very complicated way that I think I have enough of an understanding on, but I, not enough to, uh, to articulate it concisely here. But, but, but one thing that I, I, I did find is that um, last year, the releases from Powell into Lake Mead were 7 million acre feet. And that's determined in large part by what the water level elevation is in Lake Powell, because they're trying to, they're trying to uh, make it so that the water elevation in Lake Powell doesn't dip below a, a certain elevation. And, and then what the elevation in it, water level elevation is in Lake Powell dictates how much they actually release to Lake Mead, which obviously relates to how much water level is in Lake Mead and how much you know, water gets allocated, you know, for the users on uh, in the lower Colorado River Basin. The point here is that I, it does seem like that this winter uh, and the snowpack will lead to more water being released from Lake Powell into Lake Mead, which will provide some relief to the dwindling storage in, in Lake Mead. But again, like, not that much if you look at the if you look at it uh, it helps but you'd need many of these years cons consecutively but i i think that that's that's at least helpful in the sense of i mean if it was the other way it would be a much worse situation so, yeah i agree yeah. i agree all right so with that um what are you looking at right now going forward um, I'm, you know, really interested to just kind of watch where all this water goes in Arizona. And I mean, just kind of from a, a fun and recreation standpoint, I think there's going to be, uh, streams flowing across the whole Southwest that we, we don't normally see, and they'll probably flow later than we've, we've often seen. Uh, I'm turning my attention now to the fire season. Uh, I think it'll be probably a bit slower than usual, most likely across the higher elevations. As I mentioned, I think the lower elevations as they dry out and we get into kind of our normal fire weather, we'll have to kind of keep an eye on that. And, you know, we're only, I don't know, we're in a matter of, do we have a countdown yet on the monsoon start? It's not that far away. And oh, we, have a, we started that countdown like we did last month. Right? Yeah, I think we did too. So it's, it's a, you know, a matter of a couple months here and we'll be into that. And the outlooks are, um, you know, as they should be completely un uncertain at this point. Completely useless for right now yeah. for the monsoon. Yeah. Um, so I had, I had the monsoon that I'm looking for, and I want to talk a little bit about that uh, really quickly. And then the other one was this ENSO state. Like, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, we're sort of transitioning out of a La Nina. It looks like the models are favoring an El Nino. Um, I don't, I'm trying to scroll through my 50 slides here, and I can't find that one. So Mike, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but but uh, my recollection is that the models are 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 favoring and the development of El Nino. They are. That's right. Yep. You know, I just want to make sure that we're we're we're, <laughs> we're not <laughs> we're truthing this in real time. Um, we are truthing it. Yeah, yeah. I got you back here. Yeah, it's yeah. It's, uh, I, yeah. I mean, like you said, like there's quite a bit of variability in what actually happens during an El Nino event, but it does tip the odds if statistics are, if you can rely on the statistics, um, it does tip the odds toward 
wetter conditions. And hey, we had back-to-back monsoons, generational monsoons, followed by a generational... (laughs) How can you have three generational... (laughs) I mean, you have to be something that has many generations over very short amounts of time, maybe like squirrels or something like that. So... That's the only way I can think about this generationally. Yeah. You know, we might. Is it a new pluvial? Maybe that'll be the next. Uh... Well, I've already. It's been. It's been bantered about here. Uh, I. I unfortunately have got some like a Murphy's laws kicking in with me. Is like you know like, okay, wet La Ninas have to be followed by dry dry El Ninos or something like that. All right. The one thing I wanted to say about the monsoon is okay. So we know that there's. It's not a strong signal. It's. I mean, let me restate that. Um, you know, papers, you know, decade ago talked often about um, this feedback between snowpack and the onset of the monsoon, right? And I, I think subsequently, like those sorts of relationships have broken down. Um, they're weak at best. You know more about this than I do, so correct me if I'm 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 wrong. But there may be something there. Physically, it makes sense, right? It would delay the progression, you know, all the cooling of the atmosphere from the um, the melting of the snow and whatnot would maybe delay a little bit of the progression of the ridge north. I don't know how strong that would be, but that's sort of the underlying physical explanation. And consequently, you you might have a, a later onset of the monsoon in 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 the fringes in the in, in our area. So if that were to play out. And given what we've talked about with the monsoon, or sorry, with the snowpack conditions, then maybe that's maybe this is a year that would that would test that hypothesis, or you know, yeah. like a long case to see if, uh, in fact, there is any um, delay in the the monsoon. So I'm I'm looking toward that. I don't know if that piques your interest at all. It does. It's a weird contingency too, with La Nina to El Nino transition, with it also being uh, high wet snowpack year, right? Because it normally if it was like a La Nina El Nino transition, it would probably also have lower than average snowpack with a La Nina moving into that. So yeah, I think it's an interesting case. And it yeah, I'm curious. Again, it's like uh, I if we could just squeak out another if we could squeak out an average summer and then put together an average to above average winter, like this is really good. Like we're a five almost in it. I know. I, yeah. I mean, I haven't had that in the 20 some years that I've lived here, so I don't actually know what it'll look like. It's in the record. I mean, you can see it in the historical record. It happens. It just doesn't happen very often. Here's what I'm not looking for. Forward to this, the, the march of increasing heat and the, and the, and the, the season of doom, which I call June. Oh man, I I'm different this year. I have had enough accumulated chill units in me personally that I'm ready for some growing degree day units. And like, I got, I'm just ready. I could soak up. I can soak up the heat this year. Like I'm, I'm feeling it. I'll come back to you at like <laughs> yeah. right after was, that. There's always a heat wave around June 10th. Yeah, it is. And it's, we'll, we'll talk in August when it's hot and humid. Um, that, then I'll be a little less happy, but it'd be raining. So I'll be happy that for that reason. So do you think chat GPT could have done a better, better, more coherent job than we just did? Uh, Probably on par. Yeah. In six months, it will be able to do it. Yeah. And it'll match that GPT five. Like it'll be like, yeah. Stacy's going to feed all our past podcasts and then, and then it'll be the end of us, which is probably, probably 
Fantastic. Okay, so good to have this chat with you. Um, as always, uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. And uh, yeah, we're back on our monthly schedule. So thanks so much again to you know Ben for all of his vision and effort along the way. And we're super excited about Stacy helping us uh, improve this and 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 take us to new levels. That's right. Thanks, everyone. Happy spring. Seems it never rains inside